You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. The book of James. This is called the book of James because it was written by a guy named James. How do I know that? Well, the first line of the book says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is written by James, which leads to your next question, James who? Or James whom? No, it's James who, I think. Um, in fact, when you look at the Bible, there's quite a few Jameses. It's kind of like the Marys and the Herods. It's a little easy to get lost in the, the sea of these people with the same name. Um, there's one apostle named James, the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of John, James and John. This is, he's one of the big three that Jesus spent more time with than the rest of the, the other nine of the 12 apostles, disciples. It's been suggested maybe him, he would have the authority to write scripture since he was an apostle commissioned by Jesus. But most people don't think it's him just because he died too early to write this. Um, he would have died in the early 40s, maybe 42, 43 A.D., um, killed by Herod Agrippa I. And so probably not him. There was another apostle named James, James, the son of Alphaeus. And um, he also would be qualified, but he's, he's really not mentioned much outside of, you know, the list of apostles. And so if he was going to do something like, like write a book of the Bible, he probably would identify himself a little more clearly than that. Probably not him. That leaves James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Why was he the half-brother of Jesus? Well, they had the same mom, Mary, but Jesus had that whole son of God, born of a virgin thing. And so he had no genetic relationship to Joseph, unlike James and the rest of Jesus' siblings. And, um, you know, this is the James, most likely, that wrote the book of James. And, um, you know... It's interesting, you know, like I said, Jesus, born of, born of a virgin, son of God. You know, Mary and Joseph went on to have at least six other kids. It lists four of his brother's names in Mark 6, 3. Um, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And then also it mentions his sisters, so there's at least two of them. So they went on to have at least six other kids. Yeah, Mary and Joseph, they, she did not remain a virgin throughout her entire life, just until she gave birth to Jesus. And so James would have been born to kind of a unique family where there would have been sort of some shame in their background, you know. The people of Nazareth would have known that Mary got pregnant before she and Joseph were married. And uh, I don't know if she gave them the whole uh, the Lord did it thing. But um, <laughs> Joseph went through with the marriage and I, it would have looked suspicious no matter what. There's no good way to frame that thing. Um, and so there would have been um, suspicion toward Jesus, toward their family a little bit there in Nazareth. And, um, you know, it's interesting about James is he would have known the human side of Jesus perhaps better than anyone. You know, they grew up together. He would have known, you know, what was Jesus's favorite food? What was his sense of humor like more than about, just about it? You know, how old was Jesus when he first was able to grow a beard? You know, James would have known these sorts of intimate little details, and I'm sure that as they grew up, that they had a close relationship. I mean, your older brother is the son of God. He would have been the most loving person who's ever lived. You would have felt so loved by him. You would have looked up to him. There, there might have been like some comparisons in your own mind. 
um, you got you and Jesus, and he, he does everything right, and why can't you be more like your brother <laughs> kind of thing? <laughs> but I imagine they had a pretty close relationship at one point, but uh, some things got in the way of their relationship. That closeness gave way to cynicism and alienation. You know, Nazareth was a town where Jesus, they were more cynical about Jesus than anybody. Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And so people were very, um, had a very low view of Jesus. They saw him grow up. They thought you can't be who you're claiming to be. And um, that cynicism crept in to James's heart and really the rest of his brothers. John tells us, frankly, in, in John 7, 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him. He tells of them mocking Jesus for his claims that he was making about who he was, his claims to divinity. You know, in Mark 3, you know, Jesus, he's, he started his public ministry, and he's so busy, he's barely got time to eat. And it his, his says when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. And that was his mother and brothers that were there. The crowd says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What an insult that, that would have sounded like to his family. Jesus is defining a new way of relating to him that transcends these, these um, familial ties. And so um, his, his brothers were cynical of him. At the end of Jesus' life, only his mom is there at the cross. In fact, Jesus has to tell the apostle John, can you take care of my mom? He entrusts the mother to, to John and not to the other brothers. And so things were pretty bad for a while. You know, James, James had lost any faith he might have had in his big brother um, and um, had basically abandoned Christ, even though he probably heard a lot of the teachings. You, you see that reflected. I, I don't think it's just what he heard from the others. I think he heard a lot of these teachings because those are echoed in the book of James. But then something amazing happens. Jesus, after he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead. He's paid for sin. He's, he's made the way for eternal life. Jesus begins appearing to Peter, the other apostles, uh, a large group. And then Paul tells us, then he appeared to James. Jesus went back to this, his, his younger brother who had, they had been alienated. He did not believe in him. And scripture doesn't tell us what happened in this interaction, but I, I'd be willing to bet that Tears were shed, and that this was a warm reunion, and James changed his, changed his mind about his big brother, that he saw them no longer as this fraud, this black sheep of the family, but as my Lord and Savior. And we see this radical transformation in James's life. He, he, became, he went on to become known as one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, took a very prominent leadership role. In fact, Hegesippus, in the 100s AD, a, a church father, he says James was especially known for his prayer life. They said his knees became hard like those of a camel. You ever seen a camel get up or, or sit? When, when, a camel, when a camel gets up, when, when, I'm sorry, when a camel um, tries to lie down, they go on their knees first, and then they go down the rest of the way. The knees get real hard and knobby and callous. And they said, James, he was such a man of prayer. And I kind of wonder if, if the way this happened was James, you know, he... He, he missed out a lot on his relationship with Jesus. He missed out on years, years that he could not get back. He had such an opportunity to be there for the earthly ministry of Jesus, and he simply was not around for it because he did not believe. And yet, 
Have you ever had a situation where, where you just miss out on a relationship and you think, man, I wish I would have talked more to this person while, while I had the chance, I had so many questions. Which, what was, was different about James, you know, for the rest of us, if someone passes away and they're a Christian, we know that relationship will resume. We'll pick up right where we left off someday in heaven. And that's such good news. But for James, he didn't even have to wait that long. Because he could now relate to his big brother in a way that he, in an even closer way than he could have when they were on earth together. And so he became this man of prayer and he was just hanging out with his bro. And he became a very powerful Christian leader. In Acts chapter 1, he's gathered there with the believers in Jerusalem. Not only has he, he become a believer within a few weeks of the resurrection, but the whole family's there now. And I bet he had something to do with that. And in Acts 15, Acts 21, he's taking such a prominent role in the action there. It looks like he is the leader of the Jerusalem church. A lot of the other apostles began to go off and minister elsewhere. James, it looks like, stayed right there and ministered in that very Jewish context. And um, he became a very powerful, very powerful Christian leader. Um, Josephus then goes on to tell us, you know, we don't just know about James from our Bibles. We see secular historians Josephus says in 62 AD, the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. And thus James lost his life in the early 60s, just before the big revolt in Jerusalem. And so James is the author of this book. That's who we're, we're dealing with here. And what's cool about this is James, um, he knows what it's like to be double-minded. He, he, he knows what it's like to abandon Christ. In fact, you know, Peter wasn't the only apostle who abandoned Jesus. James did a lot worse than Peter. And uh, his prayer life gives us maybe the best material out of all the epistles on prayer that we've got. He's got some great stuff on prayer. We'll see some of it tonight. His audience, it says, was the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. He says, greetings. These 12 tribes, these would be Jewish Christians who were scattered like seed. They were the, the diaspora. That's the, that's the term he uses. Um, so, you know, the, Christianity started out as a Jewish thing in Jerusalem, and then a persecution breaks out, and they get scattered all over the, the region of Israel. And some even ended up outside of, of Israel and in other places of the Roman Empire. And so he's writing to these Jewish Christians who were suffering. Some of them were suffering pretty intensely. You know, the Jewish Christians were persecuted by the Jews for not being Jews, and then the Romans hated Jews. And so they were persecuting all the Jews. So the Jewish Christians are getting it from both directions, from the Jews and from the Romans. And so they would have been suffering pretty intensely. They would have had their property seized at times. Uh, you would have had sometimes where dad got killed and that left the rest of the family impoverished. And so they were poor and they were hurting. And, you know, this book of James, it reads a lot like, like Jewish wisdom literature. It's almost like the book of Proverbs plopped down in the New Testament with a little bit more of a flow of thought, you know. It's, um, it's very simple. It's not overly theological. It's very to the point. There's a lot of action verbs, do this, do that, imperatives. And so um, this is, uh, it doesn't really even talk about the Gentile Jewish relation issues. That's partly why people think this book is so early. Um, in fact, the date for this, probably the mid-40s AD, this is probably the first book in our New Testament that was written. 
And, um, you know, we know in the mid-40s there was a major famine that left the poor Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem area even poorer. The fact they were taking up collections. And so there's a lot of rich, poor stuff going on in this book where the poor Christians were sort of being tempted to suck up to the rich and uh, to give them preferential treatment. And James is going to take them to task for that. And so we've got James written to Jewish Christians, a very Jewish flavor book here. And it's written in the middle of the 40s AD. And here's what he says to these suffering believers. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And so he says, isn't it great? We should be so happy. We've lost our house. Our friends are getting killed. Awesome. What is he talking about? Well, first of all, he says, when you encounter various trials. And so we live in a broken world where there's going to be suffering. And you don't get out of that just because you become a Christian. I know there's some Bible teachers that teach that. That's just simply not true. You can see it right there in James 1, 2. He says, when you encounter trials, you will still suffer. The difference is how we suffer. The difference is we have a sovereign God who stands over our suffering, who is with us, who won't let anything into our lives. That's too difficult for us. And he says, when you encounter various trials, and these various trials can be trials of all shapes and sizes. He's not specific here. You know, this might be physical pain. I'm sure some of his readers were experiencing that. I'm sure some of this are experiencing that. Chronic pain, pain that has been going on for months or years and may never go away. Sickness can be a tremendous trial. Some sicknesses which leave us maybe, in in his case, his readers may be uh, in danger of life itself. Injuries can be incredibly painful, and especially back in his day, where an injury could leave you unable to work. But we have these two. Some of us are dealing with this stuff. Sickness, injuries, chronic pain. There's relational pain, which sometimes can hurt even more. You know, Jeez Fernando, he's a, um, a guy who's ministered in Sri Lanka for decades now. It's a war-torn country. He, he was, he, he's lived there his whole life. And he says, you know, if people come to me and they're like, how can you... Um, live in a place like this with all the pain and suffering and the wars and the civil wars and the persecution of Christians. And he says, that's nothing compared to the relational pain that I've experienced. It goes much deeper. You know, sometimes there's family and friends who betray you or let you down. His, James's audience has that. Some of us have been let down by people close to us, even betrayed. There's romantic pain. Any of us got any of this going on? The dating relationship just isn't working. Man, I've been through this where it's like we've been dating for years and I just don't feel like this is going the way I want it to go. And I'm not sure what the end is looking like here, but it doesn't look good. The pain of singleness. I've been there too where I'm like, I thought I'd be married by now. I'm this old and I'm still single. It hurts. Uh, There's the other problem too where you're married and that's hurting also. This isn't what I expected it to be. Um, Maybe worse than the pain of singleness. Um, It can feel more hopeless. Uh, It's not, but um, it can be pretty painful. You're like hurting the person and being hurt in ways you didn't know could hurt. Um, What about when someone you care about is sick? And they're in the hospital, and they're out of the hospital, and they're in the hospital again, and we don't know what's wrong. What about when someone you care about dies? Parent, spouse, child, friend. 
What about persecution, hatred, the subject of attacks from family, from other people, from random people? There's also the busyness of life. You know, life, life can wear you down. I remember, you know, it's like the week before final exams. I think some of us are in this right now or just past it where I just remember I'm like, I am so tired and I just want this to be over with. And I just literally, it's like, you know, the gas pedal's down, the adrenaline button, you're just holding it down at this point. <laughs> it's out. <laughs> and you're just like, I have to just go. Um, deadlines at work, where you're just like, I've had these where I've pulled all-nighters for, my, for uh, work. And uh, you're just like, I got to get this, I got to get this software done. You know, it, it has to be done. And it really didn't get done. <laughs> Not even close. Um, <laughs> so we delayed the release and um, kept delaying. And that's another story. But <laughs> it was my fault, though. I mean, that's hard. Um, money troubles... You just are in constant worry, and then all of a sudden I got a parking ticket, and I was not even parked illegally. There was a helicopter with a speed gun, and they sent me a ticket in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) And unemployment, this is so frustrating. I just want to work. Uh, Some of us have been through abuse. The memories of it make it hard to sleep at night. The thing that happened, God, why did you let that happen? Some of us are going through failure. You know, some of this pain is self-inflicted. It's a little hard to sort out what's my fault and what's not. Moral failure. I mean, James knew some of that. His readers knew some of that. He did it again. Or ministry failure, where you're just trying so hard to serve God and just feels like I... I've been doing this how long, and I have nothing to show for it. Setbacks. I mean, think about the setbacks his, his, his church's experience when a persecution broke out and so many of the Christians had to flee the city. Think how devastating that would be for what they're trying to do there. Confusion about what direction to take. Where I just, I'm, I want to go, but I just, I don't, know, I don't know which way to go, and I'm so confused, and I've been sitting here for a year, and the fog is just as thick as ever. Natural disasters can, can wreak havoc in people's lives. Weather, um, the famine that hit his readers, they didn't do that. It just happened. But they were the poor, and the poor usually get it the worst when there's a shortage of anything. So James says, all these various trials counted all joy, brethren. Wow. That's a little hard one to take. We're going to have to think about this. What James gives us here is he gives us four things we can do when we encounter various trials. And the first one he tells us to do is he says, consider it all joy. Yeah, this word consider, it's like an accounting term. It's like an evaluate. You need to evaluate it properly. Not just go on how you feel or what's right in front of me, but we need to look at the whole thing. And our, our overall consideration of this should be joy. should actually bring us happiness. And peace and joy. And he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This testing, this word here, is used two times in scripture. This is like a metallurgist term. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.7, he explicitly ties it to the gold refining, the gold smelting process. 
He says, your faith being refined through suffering, he says, it's like, it's like the smelting of gold. And, and, and what you get after your faith is refined, it's way more valuable than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Yeah, the testing, this is, this is the, the good thing that's left over. It's both the process and also the end result. And he says, the testing of your faith produces endur- endurance. You know, um, you need go- uh, how much gold ore do you need to make gold? Have you, ever, have you ever looked at this? How much gold, how much gold do you think you can get out of one metric ton of gold ore? About 1.5 grams of gold from a metric ton. It gets ground into powder and then heated to approximately 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's all you can get out of it. But that's the only way to get the gold. There's no other way than that process. And I'm sure it doesn't feel too good for the gold. If the gold could speak, it would say, what are you doing to me? Why, God, why? But if it could see... What the master metal worker here is doing might have a different perspective on it. Might be glad that such a short-term process is going to produce such a fine result. Yeah, there's no other way besides the grinding and the intense heat. And, and for our faith, to get endurance, to get something like stability, the ability to be happy no matter what happens, reliability... There's no other way to get there besides the grinding and the intense heat. The suffering is the only way. We need to see it. We need to see that. We need to start to see our suffering as short-term pain for long-term results. We're taking, we're giving something that's worth very little that lasts such a short time. And you get something that's priceless. Something you literally cannot buy with money. To get wisdom, to get endurance, to get peace, to get joy. These things that God is offering, this is what the world is longing for. And if if we could see things properly, then we would see we are really getting a deal here. And this is so short. Light and momentary affliction, Paul calls it, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Jesus gives an illustration of a seed and he says, you know, a kernel of wheat. It, It can't produce fruit unless it you can't get a harvest unless it falls down into the ground and breaks down it. And then that's when the plant can spring forth. And again, you can imagine that little, you know, kernel of corn sitting high on the stalk, all hard and shiny in the sun, looking good. It's probably feeling pretty good about itself. And then it falls to the ground and it gets down in the dirt. And it starts to break down. It's like, oh my God. But it's at that point that something very profound is happening. It's breaking down so that it can bear much fruit. And Jesus said, that's what I'm going to do. He was talking about his own death. But he was, also, he was talking about what we're going to have to experience as well. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And part of the image of Christ is the suffering of Christ. I remember when I was younger, I had a baseball glove. And uh, if you've ever got a new baseball glove, you know they're almost worthless if it's real leather. It's like, it's so hard and unusable and you can't catch stuff with it. And so what I would do is I would get this, I had this oil, I can't remember what it was called, but you put this oil all over it. And then you stick a ball in there and then you get, you get a belt and you just crank that ball right in the pocket. 
and then you slam that thing around. You, 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 usually I'd start by just leaving it like that for a couple of days. And then you take it out, you kind of hit it some, you might throw it in the driveway, run it over with your car, but you got to get that glove broken in if it's going to be of any use to you. And God, you know, suffering is kind of that way. And, and again, it's not like if we don't follow God, we won't suffer, right? Everybody suffers. We just have a purpose. We have somebody overseeing the process. Um, but it's kind of like that glove. It's like God has work to do in our lives that might not feel too good at times. But if we, can, if we can just keep in mind the end game, that's what we need. One author gives the example of an eagle with, with the, the mother eagle with her eaglets. And, you know, she, she, the eagle is born into this nest and the nest is perfect. And it's all fluffy and... And she constantly is bringing food. She even chews it up and kind of, you know, digests it. And then mama birds it right into the mouth of the eaglet. And it's just love and life, you know. What could be better? I don't have to move. I don't even have to chew my own food. This is it. And then one day, the mama bird gets up and just starts tearing the nest up. And little baby eaglet's like, what is mama doing? And then the little eagle looks over the edge and they're like, wow, it's a long way down. The next thing he feels is kaboom. <laughs> Claw to the rear end. And the little eaglet is plummeting to its death. And the heart rate is up to one million beats per minute. And it's wondering, why, God, why? <laughs> and then whoosh, mom swoops down and grabs that bird. After a few flaps, the eaglet finally takes because it's going to die anyway. <laughs> and then the process happens again and again and again. And that bird learns to fly in a way that it just simply would not had it not been booted from the nest. God knows what he's doing when he puts us through trials. Why does an athlete hire a personal trainer? It's because they want to win the prize. They want to win the Super Bowl. They want to win the World Series. They want to win the title belt. And they know they need someone to push them if they're going to get there. You know, imagine you pay all this money for your trainer. And the coach is like, all right, do 20 sets of bench press. And you're like, why don't you love me? That hurts. Run a mile. No. No, athletes tend to understand this. It's no pain, no gain. We have to go through pain because that's part of what, it breaks down the muscles and they're rebuilt stronger. The, the cardiovascular system begins to, to become more efficient. It's processing of oxygen. Why does the student hire a tutor? The tutor is just going to give them more work. They, they want to get the degree. They want to learn the material. They know they need to grow, and it's only by putting strain on the brain that they're going to grow in very specific ways. Why does the sick patient go in for surgery? It's painful. There's a recovery process. Well, it's because you know this is the only way to that end goal of health. And it might, there might be some pain for a while. You think about a doctor setting a bone. In the ancient world, before anesthesia, you know, the doctor would have to, I mean, the, the patient would have to hang in there and let the doctor work. 
And, and some just simply, they couldn't hang in there. And so they, they would live the rest of their life crippled because they could not let the doctor work for a moment of pain. And that's what we need to have here. We need to have this perspective. It's short-term pain for long-term results. So we need to consider it all joy as we look at the big picture. Gratitude. But secondly, James tells us, let endurance have its perfect result so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So let endurance finish. Not just count it all joy, but we got to hang in there. We got to hang in there and let the doctor work. We got to go along with, what, with this thing in our lives. Let's say you want to become a more patient person. And maybe you even ask God, God, make me a more patient person. How do you think that's going to happen? What, are you going to read a book on patience? I've studied patience for many years. I know all the Greek words. That doesn't make you a patient person. Let's list all the ways that we could maybe become a patient person. Number one, want something really bad right now and not get it. Okay, that would be one on the list. Number two, uh, want something really bad right now and not get it. You know, we can study this, but it's as we go through number one and two and three, which is the same thing, and four, which is the same thing, and five, which is the same thing, that's how we learn patience, experientially. This is how we learn, this is also how we become the kind of person that can relate to someone who's suffering. One of, the, one of the things you'll find is that the ways that you're suffering, if you hang in there, you're going to gain a wisdom and an insight in that area that simply you would not have if you had not been through it. And so instead of coming in with the easy answers and just follow my three-step plan or just suck it up, wimp, um, you're going to know what that person's going through and you're going to have insights that God only showed you after three years of this suffering that you might be able to help that other person with. Patience does not come easily, but it's priceless. It's so worth it. What a gift God can give us. Sanders says, against the senseless and furious rush of our times, God often seems unduly leisurely in his intervention in our affairs. We want an answer. We want it at once. But God does not always oblige. He refuses to be stampeded into premature action. Yeah, just because you throw a tantrum, he's a good enough parent that he's not just going to give in to that tantrum. Our urgency and impatience stem from the shortness of our vision and the imperfection of our knowledge of all the facts. God's seeming leisureliness arises from his perfect knowledge of all the facts and his perfect control of all the circumstances, nor does he always explain his tardiness. Some of it you might just not understand until we get there, but some of it you might look back and just say, I'm so glad I had to wait all that time. I'm so glad God did not give me that when I wanted it because that wasn't even what I wanted. The shortness of our vision. Yes, this is part of what James is trying to correct here. He's trying to help us take the long view. And he says, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yeah, you know, not all, the grow, not all those that grow old grow up. Just because somebody's growing old doesn't mean they're growing up. There's a big difference between age and maturity. You could be pretty old and pretty immature. Alan Redpath said, if you want to serve Christ, you need to have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the height of a rhinoceros. 
There's a tenderness and a toughness that we need to cultivate. And God is so good at giving us both of these things. You know, if I'm suffering on my own, I'm just becoming a, a shut down person. I'm just thickening the calluses and that's it. But with God, there's a toughness and a tenderness because of how he puts us through it, because we go through it with him. Um, there's, a, there's a lovingness. There's a, there's a love that we receive from him in the midst of this and a gratitude that we have as he grows us. Yeah, we want to be, be complete, lacking in nothing. But if you do lack wisdom, James says, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So a third thing we can do, we need to consider it all joy. We need to let endurance have its, you know, run its course and not pull out early. And third, we need to ask God for wisdom. There's something we can do in the midst of our suffering. Talk to God about it. James was a man of prayer. And he says, just, just talk to him. You'll be so glad you did. We, we tend to want to just toughen up and take it. But let me tell you, in my life, suffering is what brought me to Christ in the first place. I had to go through some painful things to even wake up spiritually. I bet you a lot of us in this room would, would be in the same boat. Some of us were not that way. We came to Christ and everything was going great. Not me. Things were bad. My life was falling apart. The things I thought I was good at, I, I wasn't doing well in. I was so lonely. And in my desperation, I turned to God. And he met me there at one of the lowest points in my life. As a Christian, suffering is the best thing that's ever happened in my prayer life. You ever wonder why you can't pray? You ever feel bad about your prayer life, wish you could pray more? Man, suffering. Suffering is so good for that. Suffering leaves you desperate. It leaves you hungry for God. Halsby, his book, Under His Wings. So good. He says, you know, there's times in our lives when our little lifeboats sail along quietly and smoothly. We encounter no difficulty with adverse winds and currents. Our health is good. Our work prospers. Everything goes well in our homes. Everything's peaceful and congenial from day to day. Financially, we're getting along well. Now and then we have a few difficulties, but on the whole, everything seems to work out wonderfully well. And in such times, many Christians forget to go to the secret place of the Most High. It's kind of hard to pray in times like that. Prosperous times make it easy to, quote, believe in God. People think God's good. Men give advice right and left about believing in God. But without a doubt, many a Christian has lost his spiritual life in the sunny but dry air of prosperity. Only a few can weather prosperity and be none the worse for it. And those few, I bet you they've suffered a lot before that prosperity hit. They've gotten enough brokenness that they can even handle, handle uh, prosperity. But there's other times, he says, in our lives when adverse winds and storms let loose their fury against our little skiff. Our plans are crossed, our hopes are dashed to pieces, illness, sorrow, and the vacant chair find their way into our homes. Impaired health makes work a burden and leaves us in straitened financial circumstances. 
One difficulty follows hard upon the other. There's scarcely time to catch one's breath between the breakers. The waves just keep pounding and pounding and pounding. Then it is well to know the way to the secret place of the Most High. Happy is he who has learned to flee to God, to seek refuge under his wings, and to find a haven from storm and tempest. To flee to God is without question the highest art in life, and it is by no means easy to learn. But God helps us by sending us suffering and tribulation. Tribulation makes us weary of the ways of the world and thereby enables us the more easily to choose the way of life. Most of us do not learn to know what the world is really like until it turns its wrong side toward us and we cut ourselves upon its sharply protruding edges. Not until then do we learn to desist from proud words and haughty bearing. Not until we've been plucked to the skin of all our feathers do we seek refuge in our helplessness in the secret place of the Most High. And what we then experience often becomes determining for the rest of our lives. Mm. The reality, the depth and riches of grace, which we then experience, give us a personal acquaintanceship with our Lord, which comes to mean something to us also when our troubles are over. We've learned the art, the secret of taking refuge under his wings, the name of the book. We've begun to see that this is the simple solution to all of life's problems. And so James says, look, guys, just go to God and talk to him about it. Go to God and talk to him about it. And what are you going to find there? A God is like, oh, it's about time you came back. Didn't do too well out there, did you? You think you just come crawling back? No, actually, what you'll find is he gives generously and without reproach. There's not going to be any dragging up the past. He's going to be like, I'm so glad you turned back. I'm so glad we're talking again. And it will be given. But, you must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. All right. First, it sounds like you can only pray if you have zero doubt. And that would, that, I mean, that would disqualify me from praying for sure, and probably most of us here in this room. What is he talking about here? I mean, I see his point, but no doubting at all? That man ought not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Yeah, I think actually double-minded man, I think that's the key to understanding this bit about doubting. He's not saying, you know, uncertainty or doubt or anything like that. What he's talking about is a person with divided loyalties. This, this word is, only, is used one other time in James, and that's it in the whole uh, New Testament. In fact, I think there's no, no occurrence of this word before this point in all of Greek literature. I think James just kind of coined this word. It's a double-souled a double sold or a double-minded. Put two words together to make it. And um, the way it's used in chapter 4 clarifies. And I think NLT is right. 1.8, the way they translate it is their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they're unstable in everything they do. Yeah, he, he's talking about Christians who've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And they're sort of trying to do both. They've kind of got the secret life over here and they've got to show up and be a hypocrite thing over here. Um, and, and they haven't really thrown in with God. He's not demanding perfection, but he, it's, it's sort of like, you know, 
you're dating somebody and they come back, they're like, I'm so sorry, I want to work it out, but they still have this other girlfriend or boyfriend. And you're like, how about you break that one off and then maybe we can work this one out. And so the, the doubting one is, is the double-minded one, the one whose loyalties are divided, who's of the world and trying to do the things of God. You, you need to make a break with that and say, I don't want to do that anymore, God. I want to be serious about going for you, and I need to put myself in a position to be successful here. Show me what to do. I'll do it. He'll answer that prayer. Definitely. That's the kind of wisdom James is talking about that you can ask for. And finally, consider it all joy. Let endurance do its thing. Ask God. And he says, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. So he says glory in your suffering, which actually is almost the same thing as number one. Consider it all joy, right? The brother of humble circumstances, the one who's really hurting, should glory in that. And the rich man should glory in his humiliation. We got a rich, rich person suffering. You should be so happy about that. This seems pretty weird, but you see this in other places in Scripture too. The Apostle Paul, for example, he talks about all this suffering in his life, and he, he concludes with this. He says, he, he, what Paul says is, I had this suffering, and I kept begging God to take it away, and God just said no. And what did God say instead? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Isn't that interesting? Most gladly, Paul says, therefore, I will rather boast. Same verb, boast or glory. It's the same word. So Paul says, I'm going to glory in my weaknesses because the power of Christ will dwell in me. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The more legitimate suffering that God sends me and that I respond to, it's not that we seek suffering, but the more, the more God breaks me, the more spiritual power I have. You ever wonder why some people have spiritual power and other people don't? Brokenness. The person's probably suffered. Suffered rightly, drawn near to God, and has had this experience right here. From when I am weak, then I am strong. We lose. No longer is this some struggle to not be proud. Although that struggle still may be there. But... Um, we have a genuine humility, born of God, which religion can never deliver. Yeah, the rich person, look, unchecked, you know, all of your wealth, that's going to fade like the flowering grass. The sun rises with a scorching wind. It withers the grass. The flower falls off. The beauty is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. You know, you're well, it's so hard to be radical for God and super wealthy. And so if we can get some suffering, that's going to help us put our wealth in perspective. And we can be spirit, and, Paul, and, and James is saying, you can actually be spiritual. Instead of deceived by your wealth, which is going to go away soon anyway. You need to have invested in the right things. And finally, happy. Some of our translations say blessed, but happy is the right word. Is the one who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, remember our, our metallurgy word? The result of the gold refining process. Once he's been refined, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so, you know, part of the reason we can glory in our suffering and we can count it all joy is because we know this life is so short 
And what we're experiencing is so temporary. And very, 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 very soon, we will be standing there before Jesus. And he will reward us for all the service we've given him in this life. All the suffering for him that we responded well to. He will reward us for that. With this crown, it's the Olympic imagery. It's, it's the marathon runner at the end of all the training, at the end of the 26 miles, standing there receiving the crown with the crowd cheering and watching on. It's not just what suffering gets us in this life, but even more what we get in the next life. And that's why we can be so happy even in the face of suffering. We know God is right there. We know he's already given us so much. He hasn't given us what we do deserve. He's given us what we don't deserve. And it's all going to be over so soon. And even, even now, this is going to be used in such cool ways that I can't see. And even if God never gave me a single other thing, I've already gotten more than I deserve. That's enough to ride on for the rest of my life. If I can keep the right perspective. Randy Alcorn has a book called Happiness. And he argues that Christians really are way too down on happiness. And we don't, we don't realize how much God has promised us in the way of happiness. He says, the Christ who indwells us now is the same Christ who will bring us joy throughout eternity. We have God's word now through which he speaks happiness into our lives. We have God's people who, despite their imperfections, are often his instruments of love and encouragement. We get happiness from his word from Christians. But many have found happiness in times of hardship by anticipating the glory and the goodness that await us, compared to which our present troubles are called light and momentary. Think about a trapped miner, he says, in pain from broken bones, could be overwhelmed with joy when he finally hears the rescuers making their way toward him. Even though the actual rescue may not take place for hours or even days, Though knowing he's still suffering for a little while, he rejoices that help is on its way. We're that miner, lying there with the broken bones, but hearing, hearing the sound, thinking, it's almost over. What a different perspective. The husband at war overseas can write to his bride facing difficult circumstances, be happy because I love you, and I'll come back for you. Her condition may be unpleasant, the separation difficult, she can still be happy now because of her beloved's promise and her anticipation of his return. That's what we have in the scripture is God saying, look, I'm coming soon. I love you. I'll come back for you. Words of encouragement. Yeah, you know, in, in this life, there's a saying, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. In the next life, it's a little different. It's just no pain. Pretty soon, that's what people will be saying. No pain. Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. This is the perspective. This is what we hold on to. So in the few brief moments between now and eternity, we suffer for a little while. It's light and momentary. It's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Well, there'll be benefits from it in this life. There'll be many refreshments from God along the way. And when we get there, it's not going to be no pain, no gain anymore. It's just going to be no pain. And that's the way we were meant to be. And that's James 1. Yeah, Lord, you know that uh, 
things aren't working exactly the way they were supposed to here with um, this world being broken. We're living in broken bodies, God. So many are alienated from you, God. We're, th- we're thankful, though, that we know that our Redeemer lives and that um, we're thankful for how you use suffering in our lives sometimes to bring us to Christ, Lord, to receive his forgiveness, God. And uh, for how you use suffering in our lives to grow us. We thank you, too, Lord, that we know that... Um, even the suffering that does not, does not get totally resolved in this life, Lord, you give us the strength to carry it to the finish line and that you promise that at the finish line it will drop off and we will never have to carry that again. And God, we pray that we can be a comfort to one another. We can help us see things in perspective. And um, I just pray for the person who is suffering right now that they would either come to you for the first time and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or that they would turn to you and just talk to you about how they're feeling and that they would talk to somebody else about that too. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.